Yo, 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 I am Brad Rickle and this is the Brad Rickle Brief. On today's episode, I am excited to talk about exit strategies. It's a concept that some of us do think about from time to time, but I would argue that none of us think about enough. An exit strategy is knowing under what conditions you leave a position. Most commonly, people think of exit strategies in regards to stocks or investments. We want to buy in a stock at $10 and we want to sell or leave at 12 That's an exit strategy. We've heard the term exit strategy regarding war as well. As one of the big knocks on Iraq and Afghanistan. We went in there and we just messed it up. USA, USA. And the rhetoric after the initial invasion, we didn't have a clear exit strategy and we got bogged down in this quagmire. I do think there was an exit strategy, but it wasn't, it wasn't shared. I think there was only a plan for occupation. And after the downfall of the government, it's tougher to, it's tougher to sell saying that we're going to go into a country and we're going to stay there forever compared to we're going to go in there, things got messy, and we had to stay there. It's the same outcome, but there's two different ways of selling it. It's akin to asking for forgiveness instead of permission. But that's just my personal thoughts on the exit strategy for Iraq and Afghanistan. The concept of exit strategies are important. Professional investors, those that make their living on buying and selling securities, they're likely to have rules on how they enter and exit a position. They may be tracking some not quite understood metric like the commodity channel index. And when it crosses a threshold, they buy. And when it crosses another line, they sell. High-frequency trading, those algorithms are built with entry and exit strategies. They have narrowly defined parameters to operate in, and they execute based on the rules, not with emotions or instincts. Are exit strategies just for war and securities trading? I don't think so. The name of this podcast episode is my thoughts on what I learned from losing a million dollars by Jim, Paul, and Brendan Moyahan. It was recommended by Nassim Tlaib about an honest look into the final destination of, of most brokers or investment firms on Wall Street. The book centers around Jim Paul's rise to great financial and professional success, only to lose everything he had and more. It's what they call a blow-up on Wall Street. The story sounds kind of familiar because there are some parallels to my life. He talks about growing up, not poor, but wanting more. He writes about going to college and barely passing. He talks about joining the military and figuring out that the military is is pretty easy, especially easy to get promoted and recognized once you realize all you need to do to succeed was show up in the right place at the right time in the right uniform. That's my story. I'm an underachieving academic that figured out the army and got a leg up. Jim purposefully writes in a way that makes you kind of not like him, but that's the point. Part of his rise and his corresponding successes, he was attributing to personal traits. He gives himself a lot of credit because he needs the reader to buy into his ego and arrogance because that's the main contributor to his downfall. Personalizing success is a fatal error that we are all predisposed to making. People will have a tendency to treat success as a personal reflection rather than the result of capitalizing on good opportunity or even just plain luck. And when we start to internalize success, that sets us up for a big fall because we start miscalculating 
our exposure to risk because we think ourselves as special. A fool can only be a fool by definition if they are proved right time and time again without failure by chance. Some misguided beliefs lead to their current lucky position, and that's where Jim Paul found himself. He went to Chicago. He was trading options. He was very successful, so successful that he would, he would see others go broke during his tenure. He personalized his success, attributing it to his skill more than opportunity or luck. And that was dangerous because if it is skill, then you can navigate out of future situations regardless of luck. He caught a few bad situations but managed to get out of them and even make money. And then this really energized the future downfall that he was going to experience. This all led to his to his death knell, as they say. He was in a futures position, but he wasn't protected on the backside. He was exposed to risk. And the worst part about it, he didn't think he was exposed. He was backfitting logic in any piece of news as he was losing more and more money. He said, this is the piece of news that's going to get me out of this position. And it ended up costing him $1.6 million in a few weeks. It was everything he had, plus he even borrowed money from friends and family to stay in his position as it was losing. He was fired from his job, security came in, traded out all of his options that he had, and he was escorted out of the building. He was kicked off of the Chicago Merchantile Exchange Board of Governors. It was a blow-up. Jim had a good thing going. Hubris was his downfall. As they say, pride comes before the fallen. It was an interesting book to read, and I think about my own life when it comes to such things. Jim writes a lot about psychological factors in there, and it reminds me of things that, that I've read already. He writes about two types of losses, internal and external. External losses are those that you can't control. A wager on a sports game, bet with a friend, losing money in the market, all external. Internal losses are things that you can control, like self-control and love. When Jim is writing about these internal and external factors, it really struck me as something similar to Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning regarding his concept about how purposeful it is for a man to accept their fate and all the suffering that goes with it. Because you can't control anything except how you choose to respond to a situation. That's the upshot of, of Man's Search for Meaning. It's the same thing. And even when the chips are down, seeing what you're made of, that's kind of what it's all about. If you lose everything, how do you respond? One of my biggest fears after reading that book is I fear that I wouldn't do well. If the chips are really down, like I might, I might self-destruct and you, you read stories differently when all of a sudden you're reading a book and it's referring to a, a good guy and a bad guy. I read books now from like a bad guy centric position like, how did that person get bad? Because they didn't start that way. And that's kind of a slow process. Most people internalize failure and success, and this can cause some major psychological damage. If you're personalizing your positions, it's easy to equate winners and losers with self-worth. They confuse net worth with self-worth. And when you hear that, confusing net worth with self-worth you know, it's a garbage mentality beat. It's easy to do when you're in that position, when you're winning. I've done it. By all objective metrics, I'm more successful now than I ever thought I would be in life. Like, to include 60-year-old Brad, right now, 
I'm more successful now than I thought I ever would be. But there are these moments when I don't feel like it's enough because I want more. I'm not defining more. I just want more. And if I don't get it, I feel like a failure. But, but why? This is a concept that I struggle with. And this goes back to exit strategy, tying it all together, not understanding why you are doing something in the first place, leaves room for emotions and ego to take up real estate in your mentality. The reason Jim Paul lost everything is because he stopped investing and started gambling based on his previous successes. And I understand that. Most of us are exposed to the stock market in some way, and we call it investing. That's not necessarily the case. If we don't have an exit strategy and we never take the money out of the market, then it's not investing, it's gambling. And there's there's a really common theme about, um, I was just having a conversation the other day with a buddy. He was talking about how Warren Buffett's approach is to, to buy and never sell. And I would argue that that's not quite how Warren approaches things because he's buying whole businesses and he's getting operating cash flow going through Berkshire Hathaway. He's playing a different game. Like how he invests isn't the same thing. But I'll use myself as an example here. When I was reading what I learned from losing a million dollars and came across a section of exit strategies and having well-defined parameters before you even go into any position, I thought about my investments. I realized I don't have an exit strategy for what I'm invested in. I have the money in the market and I'm telling myself that it's going to go up over time and that it's for retirement so I don't need it for 20, 30, 40 years. But realizing I don't have an exit strategy made me feel a little more uncomfortable when I really started thinking about it. I'm not giving any genuine thought towards this hard-earned money. I'm treating it little better than going to the casino. And that's tough to reconcile because we don't view putting money in the stock market as gambling. But if you don't have a plan, it is. When I go to the casino, I have a set amount of money that I'm willing to lose. I don't have a plan for when I get up and walk away. I have a, a down direction exit strategy. If I walk into a casino with $100 and I lose, I walk out. There's normally some element of luck and fatigue that I need to intersect before I get dragged away by Mallory. So for instance, if I go to Ojibwa Casino in Wisconsin, I bring $100 with me. My lower threshold, like I said, is going to be $100. If it happens in 30 minutes, I think that sucks, and I consider pulling more money out so I can keep gambling, but let's just say I walk out. And scenario B, I still lose, but it takes four hours, even better. It was good entertainment, and I was prepared to lose that money anyway. But I don't have an upper threshold established. I don't go into the casino saying, if I get up $500, I'm going to walk out. If I get up $500, I start thinking about how much more money I can win before I get too tired to stay. More often than not, I end up giving it all back and then losing the $100 I walked in with. My exit strategy, more often than not, going into a casino is losing $100. And this concept got me thinking about how I'm investing. I don't have a plan for the money I have invested. I tell myself that it's temporal. There's a time-based strategy that I don't need it for a few decades, and I should just put in a vehicle that will potentially gain as much as possible over time. Thinking about it, it's sloppy. Chances are it will grow. All of the sound financial minds in the world will tell you that it's smart to do, and it's the right move. But 
that shouldn't excuse me from thinking about an exit strategy with this money. And I think I can get there. Asking myself what this money is for. If it's for retirement, what do I want retirement to be? If I make enough money to support that retirement, do I then pull it out and move it into a safer investment vehicle like cash or bonds? If it's time-based, right? Because talk about a 401k with work and you can start drawing that at 59 and a half, but let's just call that 60. Do you just pull everything out at 60? Is that the plan? And that's really what makes the exit strategy is that there's actually a plan. And so if it is time-based, if it is this 401k retirement plan and you're just saying at 60, I'm going to pull everything over into a conservative position or I'm going to pull half or whatever, then you actually have something. I haven't done that yet. I just say it's for retirement and I don't need to think about it right now. And if it is time-based, does that include all situations? If I'm pulling it out at 60 years old and the market loses 50% of the value when I'm 59, would I keep it in? Just thinking about that makes me a little uneasy because it could happen. And then all of a sudden it's just like, well, yeah, in that scenario, I would keep the money in. Maybe I need to change my exit strategy and start pulling out money before. The movement of the market should not affect me from executing the strategy because it was time-based and not performance-based. And I don't have a performance-based metric on my retirement money. I had an interesting conversation the other day regarding what to do with extra money and the idea of paying off a mortgage or investing it into the stock market. All of the financial managers in the world would say that it's, it's foolish to pay off a mortgage right now versus investing in the market. The math just doesn't make sense with today's interest rates. My question is, what is the money for that you're investing? If it's for security, what can be more secure than paying off a house? You always have a place to live no matter what the market does. It's an important question to know what you want your money to do for you. If you're saying, I don't know, but I want more. I don't know what I need saved, but I need more saved. The real answer is likely you're never going to have enough in the end because you've never, you've never had that conversation, that internal dialogue of what is enough. So what do you want your money to do for you? This is the question I've been trying to have an internal dialogue about over the last few weeks. That's the first part of the exit strategy, knowing what your desired end result will be before you move into a position. And you shouldn't feel bad about using your money that you've earned and saved towards your goals. If you're saving your money so you can pay off your house and the market's been on a tear for over a decade, take some money off the table and do it. Jim Cramer from Mad Money is a lot of things. But the one thing that I have a tendency to agree with him on is that you should realize earnings now and again and do something with it. More recently, this has got me thinking about how the market has an absorption layer. An absorption layer is just letting you know that there's a stop somewhere in the system and it prevents future iterations. Typically, as an example, if you can think about this, or at least this is how I think about it, it's a photon that's emitted from the sun traveling to Earth and it ends up hitting a leaf. The green part of the spectrum of the photon gets absorbed and that's what we see as green. And the rest, the rest of the Roy G. Biv gets reflected away. That's an absorption layer. Like the plant absorbs the energy and turns it, converts it into energy. The market has an absorption layer. There's a stop for the participant. 
there's possibilities of that. The market can go to zero or maybe more appropriately, your position can go so low that you don't play in the market anymore. If everything you have is invested and this happens, you don't keep investing. You're broke. You're so broke that you're never going to put money back in. The market dropping 75% would be a great buying opportunity, but you can only buy in that opportunity if you have the capital to do so. Nassim Tlaib learned from one of his mentors an an interesting investment strategy. He roughly, or at least he states that he does, I don't know if he actually does or not, he keeps 90% of what he has in a very safe position like medium-term treasuries. The remaining 10% is invested in aggressive option positions. And he's even willing on that 10% to lose most of it. He's expecting of the things that he's investing to lose upwards of 90% of them. But the ones that he wins are going to be so big that it pays off. And why is this important regarding the, the absorption layer? It's because he always has capital in the back to deploy and he's prepared to lose that 10%. All of us are exposed to risk in the stock market. Tlaib's strategy seems to just be an exaggerated form of how everybody else invests. And I can't speak for that strategy, but it's interesting, especially when compared to the typical investment strategy, especially that I'm doing, a well-diversified portfolio that exposes enough risk for a good reward. And I've been thinking a lot more about keeping my money reserved so I have capital in case these black swans happen to keep myself protected from a large impact random event. But this type of strategy is not socially accepted groupthink. Most financial managers and advisors wouldn't talk about this because they don't fully understand that the market has an absorption layer. If you think 1980s Japan, they'll say that that would never happen in the United States. But what they should be saying is, That absolutely can happen, and you are exposed to that risk. Jim Paul, the author of the book, he lost everything and more. Why would I want to keep myself exposed to this kind of risk, especially since I don't know how I would respond with such adversity? Like I said earlier, I might self-destruct. That's my biggest fear. And people get confused about probability and risk. They think it's the same thing. The reality is that you can't control probability. You can only manage your exposure to risk and losses, not predict the future. The biggest losses occur because of unique, non-repeatable events. The market's getting hammered over the past two weeks from supposedly the coronavirus. You know, and that's more backfitting logic towards the narrative of what's actually happening. If a new virus ends up wiping out half of the world and taking the market down with it, I can assure you that no one predicted that six months ago. Money invested in the market is exposed to risk. We are controlling the downside by acknowledging the money we invest may go to zero. We may lose more money in the market than you put in only if you're investing, like say in some sort of leverage position or maybe you're in margin. But no one listening to this podcast is doing that. So we limit our exposure to the downside by the amount we actually have invested in. We only go to the casino with $100 And that's what we're prepared to lose. We should be prepared to lose everything that we put into the market. The market, or more appropriately, your and my position in the securities, can go to zero. If it does, how does that affect you? 
have you really thought about that? Because it's just accepted that it's going to go up. And that's what we tell ourselves. If you say it's highly unlikely to happen, you're probably right. Now, if you say it won't happen, we live in different worlds. And because you think it won't happen, your losses may be greater than you're prepared for. Time will probably prove my move to pay off the house instead of investing is wrong. Even when we paid off the house just a couple years ago, the market's been on a really good run. Some empiricists will, are going to argue that I could have made tens of thousands more and compounded over time, maybe even hundreds of thousands. My perspective is, so what? I can't lose what I don't put in the middle, as they say in Texas Hold'em. I have worked and saved and invested for financial security. Part of that plan was to pay off my house before I retired. I was able to do that. With the money that I had invested in the market, that has been going up over the last 10 years. I was able to make that possible. I still have money left in the market. I have a lot of money left in the market. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. But I'm thinking more now about what my goal is for that money that I have invested. Saying it's for retirement is kind of an easy way out. That stops short and cheats me from really thinking about my exit strategy. Why do we only use exit strategies on Warren investing anyway? Would we not be better served to have this applied to more aspects of our lives, thinking about the end? Now, I know there's, there's prenups in the world of marriage, and that's something very similar. You kind of think about the end before you go into the beginning. Like when the times are good, you're like, all right, well, if it gets to this point, it's going to end like this. And it's pretty common. It's common practice in today's world. A lot of couples do it. There's nothing wrong with it. But why don't we think about that for, say, the jobs that we take? Wouldn't it be interesting to ask uh, if you're an employer, a prospective candidate, under what conditions would you leave this company in the future? And if we walk this out a little, most people that are asked that question would think like, well, is this going to be my last job before I retire? And there is a section of people that might be currently on their last job before they plan on retiring. I think all but a select few answer that they're going to have another job after their current job, at least one. So a follow-on question might be, so why wouldn't you work this job until you retire? Why would you take another job? These kind of questions start roughing out what an exit strategy might look like. Are you staying in this job until you can get an offer for more money from another company? Are you in your current job because you want to be vice president? I have never really thought about leaving a job before I started one. I go into a new job and I get excited about all the potential opportunities that could be ahead in the new job. Or I'm just sick of the last job. So when I take a job because of the exciting opportunity or because I'm sick of the last job and I find out that the grass isn't greener on the other side, I start looking for the next job. And there's some pretty common advice out there saying that you should always be looking for your next job. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Maybe you always should be looking for your next job. More appropriately, maybe I should ask myself why I'm working. What am I trying to get out of this job? This book, what I learned from losing a million dollars, coupled with some Nassim Tlaib previously, got me thinking a lot more about risk versus probability, gambling versus investing, trying to understand risk is giving me more measured pause about what I want to do with my money. Thinking about my money makes me wonder what I want to accomplish with it. That leads me to think about what I want out of life. 
That's some heavy-duty thought. All this revolves around an exit strategy. Jim Paul lost big because he was operating off of ego and emotions, and he lost it all and then some. He was a millionaire a few weeks previous, then it all unfolded so drastically. He states in the book the importance of not being in a continuous process system, a system with no clearly defined end state. And I think that applies nicely to the concept of exit strategies, and we can apply exit strategies to many more parts of our lives. And my argument is I think we'd be better off for it. So I'm going to take some time and think about what I want my money to do for me. What do I want out of life? And when should I be pulling my money out? If I never use it, it's not real. If it's not real, why am I working so hard for it? These are big questions to chew on that I'm just now starting to uncover. Because just keeping it in, hoping that it's going to go up for decades and decades and decades with no clear end state for what that money is for, that's a gambling mentality, not an investing mentality. That is it, folks. Thanks for tuning in. It has been a little bit since my last podcast. As you might have noticed, things are going well at life, at home, at the job. But the new baby, Bodhi, is taking up a pretty decent chunk of time. I really need to plan my week a little bit better to get these podcasts out. He's a good baby, but all babies need time and attention. I'm going to keep this podcast thing going. I've really been enjoying it. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. It keeps you up to date. Reach out to me if there's any topic that you would like to expand on, or maybe you want to come in on as a guest. As always, music is provided by James Spensley. That dude knows how to shred. See you later, folks. I'm out.